Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today, we're kind of turning back to COVID-19, but also grounding our uh, long-term tradition in economic research. And I'm very happy uh, to welcome David Williams, who is a policy outreach director for Opportunity Insights. Uh, some of our listeners may know Opportunity Insights is a research and public policy lab based at Harvard University dedicated to using big data to improve upward mobility in America. The lab is led by professors Raj Chetty, John Friedman, uh, and Nathaniel Hendren. Um, Raj Chetty is often regarded as one of the uh, probably the best uh, applied microeconomists uh, of our age. And the lab has done some fascinating work about inequality, social mobility, and they recently launched a very fascinating project since uh, last March uh, called Track the Recovery, which is a very granular data on, on consumer spending, on unemployment, uh, what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, David here is tasked with supporting research and evidence-based policy change by creating and leading partnerships with communities across the country. And he works very closely with the main principal investigators at the lab. Uh, so David, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about all the fascinating research that you guys are doing. Yeah, Tiger, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Also, I was doing some reading. I guess you are a comedian and art expert <laughs> to be able to hit on those topics. But, you know, you're happy to be here. Uh, th thanks so much. Uh, it's really interesting. So uh, my two of my friends and I, we were planning on going to Boston to visit you guys at the lab last March. It was during our spring break and uh, we had this whole thing set up and then the COVID pandemic hit. So, so our trip sort of got canceled and we never got the chance to make things happen. And then I was doing my summer research, um, you know, in, in, in uh, about pandemic and taxation. And my advisor was telling me and, and some other professors, they, they started sending me links. They said, have you seen the stuff that has been put out by Opportunity Insights, what they're doing with the COVID tracking project, uh, which is just fascinating. So we can jump right that in, in a sec, but probably before that, would you mind telling us a bit about what Opportunity Insights is? Is it a think tank? Is it a lab? Uh, or is it a research group? And, and, uh, and who are you, David? So I'd love to start from there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. No, of course it was, you know, too bad that we didn't get to have this conversation in person last March, but now we have lots more to talk about. So I think it works out. Um, but yeah, so again, David Williams, I serve as the Director of Policy Outreach at Opportunity Insights. And I think technically we are a research and policy institute that's based at Harvard, right? So it's you know, taking the work that Raj and his colleagues have done for over the past decade, looking at issues of economic mobility, poverty, and all these really important issues and figuring out right, how do we leverage all that research, all the data they use to actually have impact on policy or how do we empower local practitioners, local policymakers and help them make even better decisions and support their work. So they're hopefully having the both impacts they want in the short term and in the long term. Um, and so that's, you know, lot, lots of what I'm kind of tasked with is, you know, making sure that people have access to the research, are aware of the research, that we're translating it in ways that are understandable and kind of helpful for these broader non-academic audiences. We're also kind of working with folks at the local level to see, hey, how do we actually use this, right? What might be applications for this research that we kind of coming from the academic sphere might not be aware of, but ways that it could actually kind of have impact um, on the ground in terms of policy, programmatic work. So it kind of, you know, I play that middle ground role of one, being able to understand the research, um, but then really working with folks who could use it effectively. 
because you actually went to Harvard Law, you have a JD background. Uh, yeah, yeah, not an so, economics PhD background. So yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely not an economist. I think in, <laughs> in some ways my superpower is that you know I have to work hard to understand the research, right? But if I can understand it, then other people can understand it as well. And I think too, right? If something is too complicated, then it means that we probably need to work harder to make sure that it is relevant for kind of a non-academic audience as well. So I, I try and you know. You know, you know, take whatever I learned from the couple of economics classes I took back um, as, an, as an undergrad and really kind of put myself in the mindset of that policymaker, of that practitioner, you know, not just, you know, how do we write papers, but how do we really make sure that it has impact and is accessible to those folks who are doing, you know, the hard work on the ground every day. Uh, it's really interesting because I guess I'm um, probably a little bit more plugged in into the econ research world compared to many of my peers and listeners. Uh, if they don't know, uh, Opportunity Insights is probably the biggest economics research lab uh, that, that is really out there in the country or, or throughout the world because you guys hire many uh, what you would call pre-doctoral research fellows, uh, I, I think maybe six, seven kids in a year, which is basically seniors who just graduated college, they had maybe math or computer science or econ degrees, uh, and then they go work for Opportunity Insights to do research for two years to assist um, the, the three main uh, professors, and then they go on to get their economics PhD programs. And, and this is, as uh, Princeton economics professor Marcus Brunemeyer would say, this is a new way of doing economics, uh, mm -hmm. harnessing the power of big data and, and sort of the lab-based, team-based approach. Uh, that is almost operating like a science lab rather than just two economists together working, right? So that's a kind of an innovation on OI's part. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting model in many ways, right? So I think just the energy from having, right, you know, young folks who, you know, are moving into this economic space who get to work with professors like Raj, John, and, and Nathan, they really provide a lot of amazing energy, right? And I think, you know, they're the people who kind of power this research, but they also really bring their own perspective to the table as well. And I think that's a piece of what's interesting about the um, lab too, is that again, right, it's not just about creating research, but trying to do it in a way that can have impact, right? So we have the pre-doctoral fellows who really support the principal investigators to kind of crank out all this new research, but we also have, you know, our, our policy staff and policy team, right, who is in close contact with the research team, really thinking critically around, right, you know, what in the research can be applied um, to the field. And then again, doing that outreach to actually work with and talk with folks who are on the ground. So I think one, both inform our research agenda, but then again, to really take that research and figure out how to apply it to real world problems and hopefully have you know, some helpful impact on policy discussions happening right, right now. How many people are there at Opportunity Insights and what are some of the projects you guys are engaged in right now? Yeah, so I think total, well, I hope I don't get this too wrong, but I think total we're at about 30 folks. Um, wow. right? So I think the, the majority of that is on the kind of pure research side. And then we have kind of like a smaller, you know, lean, but very efficient policy team. And then of course, like, you know, you know staff and kind of leadership who help with communications and just running of the organization um, itself. So, you know, it's kind of a fun environment to get, you know, these like amazingly innovative researchers with, you know, folks who bring lots of other perspectives to the table. And I think it allows us to do things in a somewhat outside the box way. I see, because uh, it's really interesting if uh, people read uh, economics papers, you just see two, three co-authors in their emails. And, and when Opportunity Insights released its uh, paper on COVID, there was like 35 names and 35 email addresses. 
yeah. at the bottom of the footnote. So that, that, that was quite interesting to see. Um, yeah, and I think even to that, right, it's funny because I think that will probably be the first and last economic paper where I'm officially a, a co-author. A co-author. <laughs> I really think it speaks to that collective ap approach, right? I think I see. when you bring all those perspectives, you can kind of create an even better research project. Yeah, um, I, I, we can discuss more about OI later, but I do want to quickly jump in right into uh, the main theme, which is the COVID track the economy.org. I believe that is the, the address uh, that people can visit. There's so much fascinating granular data because I, I, was, I was listening to Professor Chetty's conversation with Professor Brunemeyer. So I think that is one of the first places where he presented this paper. I think on the day that the paper was released, he did this webinar series with Professor Brunemeyer at Princeton, who was hosting the webinar series on COVID. And uh, there were just so many really interesting results and data that, that was coming out from OI. David, would you mind giving us a quick overview of, of uh, what unfolded in, in those few months? Yeah, absolutely, right? So I think like everyone, you know, COVID was unexpected um, and we kind of had to pivot um, to be helpful and relevant, right? So a lot of our work um, uses public sector data, census and IRS data, um, to track long-term outcomes in communities across the, the country. Uh, again, kind of looking at outcomes 10, 15, 20 years, 20 years, 20 years later for, for kids. Um, but something we saw was that, right, COVID hits and it was so unexpected and kind of changing, the impacts were changing every day on communities. You know, we saw resources like the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, right? You know, these tools that help people track the actual health impacts in real time at the local level. And those became increasingly important for public health officials. But I think, right, something that we noticed, though, is that on the economic side, there was not a similar real-time source of data, right? You have things like the, the jobs report, right, other kind of federal indicators, but those, you know, maybe monthly, maybe quarterly, perhaps, you know, you know, you know biannual. And, right, given how quickly this crisis was spreading, right, that information wasn't timely enough. Um, so kind of Raj and team had already had some conversations with some kind of private sector stakeholders on some other research projects. And I think from that, the idea was, hey, what if we actually leverage private sector data to get a better sense of what's happening, right? Because if you think about it, right, there are right, billions, if not trillions of financial transactions every day. So in a certain sense, right, you know, we have a very precise sense of what's happening in the economy based on everything that's going on. But usually this data isn't publicly accessible. So the idea was if we can actually take some of this private sector data and kind of standardize it and put it on a publicly accessible tool, this could serve as a resource to help people understand, right? How is the pandemic really impacting the economy every month, every week, potentially every few days? And what does this look like, you know, at the region level, at the state level, you know, at individual counties? to again, really get a sense for right, what's happening in real time, you know, how is it happening across different geographies, and then what therefore might be the policies we need to implement right, to help kind of, you know, sort of stop COVID and hopefully lead towards more equitable recovery. I think the really interesting thing is typically if one were to review such a crisis or, or even to give any kind of sense about what happened in an economy, you would wait a quarter, a few quarters, a year out and then you look at aggregate data, what happened to GDP, unemployment, what are the sort of high level macro outcomes? And maybe you have some kind of uh, household spending granular level data from the government agencies. But this is the age of the big data where there's just billions of transactions, as you mentioned, from credit card to job, job posting on the line. So it, it turns out that Opportunity Insights worked with probably a dozen 
uh, data partners, private sector data partners from affinity solutions to burning glass or like job posting websites. The, the, uh, you guys even have data on like how, how many hours of like math classes kids are really watching to, to show the impact on, on uh, education. So um, why don't we just dive into the research? What were some of the kind of the broader level findings? What was, uh, yeah. Yeah, no, so I think, right, two of the findings that I found particularly impactful. So one was looking at employment rates, right? So I think, you know, when the crisis hit, I think right, everyone was impacted, right? I think, you know, you know, companies were shutting down, you know, their shutdowns across the country. But something we saw is it was that that hit was especially hard on low-income workers. Um, and actually, kind of several months into the crisis, right, we actually, especially now, right, we see that, you know, employment rates for high-income workers are actually back to pre-crisis levels. Whereas for lower wage, wage workers, right, still down by I think over 20% across the country and worse in, in certain places. So I think, you know, in some sense, right, we're all in this together, but different communities are definitely being impacted in very different ways and low wage, low income workers are being impacted the most and, and they're still being impacted today. Um, I think one of the other kind of key findings was on the education front that you referenced. So we have data from an online math curriculum called, called Zern. And something we saw was actually before the crisis, right, engagement in this platform was actually pretty even between higher and lower income communities. But when the crisis hit, we saw a really steep drop off in low income communities in terms of both participation online and in progress they were making through this curriculum. Whereas in high income communities, Right, kind of after an initial um, drop, their engagement actually went up, and we're still seeing that today. I think you know engagement has kind of gone up, you know, you know, since the initial crisis. But I think we're still seeing a differential of almost kind of twenty percent between lower and higher income communities. And again, this is not just reflecting previous inequities between these communities, but is actually showing kind of exacerbated outcomes, um, kind of based on the crisis itself. So I think it both shows, especially in the short term, right, low wage workers are being hit really hard. But there's also these long-term implications, right? Where these kids and, and learning loss, right? I think if we're not supporting these families and students right now, I think we're gonna see the impacts of that five, 10, 15 years down, down the road. There's a lot to unpack there because um, David, maybe we can go point by point because just to resonate what you were saying, I think uh, the research by you guys showed that I think by April, the bottom quarter of wage earners, which, which are those making less than $27,000 a year, lost almost 11 million jobs. So more than three times the number lost by the top quarter, which are more than $60,000 a year annually. So as you said, the impact was extremely disproportionate. And one interesting, extremely interesting thing that you guys did was that you overlaid the, the aggregate sort of consumer spending picture on the spending data on zip code. And you found out that uh, if you're in a richer neighborhood, uh, rich people spent less. And that had a much greater kind of um, impact on the small businesses there. Yeah. So, so in other words, if you are a worker in the Upper East Side of New York, which is a very affluent area, you would actually be hit harder than a small business or a worker in the Bronx. Yeah. yeah. No, I think, right, this has been a very unique crisis and very different than previous recessions. So, you know, you, you, you hit it spot on, right? What we see in the data is that Right. The recession, the economic crisis is actually being driven by lower con con consumer spending from high income house households. Right. And so because of that, 
right? Then that kind of trickles down to those companies that they would usually, um, you know, be 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 going to. So, you know, in these wealthier neighborhoods, right? It's predominantly right those restaurants, those bars, those places that require that face-to-face -face interaction are the places that were hardest hit. Again, in those high-income communities. But the interesting part is that you know it's not high-income folks who are then being impacted, right? Because you know they're not not spending. But it's the workers at these establishments, oftentimes lower income workers, who are facing the brunt of this drop in consumer spending. So it's this kind of like, you know, non-intuitive, but somewhat intuitive finding when you think about it, right? This is a public health crisis, right? It's not necessarily being driven by people kind of worried about their finances. It's certain sectors like restaurants, like travel, you know, these places that require that face-to-face -face interaction, those are the ones being hit hardest. And it's those employees, those lower wage wage workers who are being hit hardest. But unlike previous recessions, you know, it's actually these low wage workers in these higher income communities who are actually being hit hardest. Whereas I think beforehand, oftentimes if you're in these communities, you're actually being being buffered. But in this case, these workers are, are even being hit harder than their counterparts in some of the lower um, lower income places. That almost seems to be a very counterintuitive uh, finding that is grounded in, in data that I don't think we would come to that conclusion naturally or intuitively had we not actually seen the, the consumer spending data, which I think we should really touch on by consumer spending. It, it seems that uh, I, I think uh, one of the findings you guys had, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the, the top income quantile or something is responsible for half of the consumer spending reduction, which means uh, rich people stop spending. And that is what really drove overall US consumer spending down a cliff. Exactly, exactly, right? So it's those, it's those households, right? Those families who are able to self-isolate, right? You know, you know, who don't have to go out um, to go to the restaurant. They can, they can get their, they can get their groceries delivered, right? It's like those families who really cut down, again, on their spending at local restaurants and bars. And I think that, again, is what really drove um, that economic drop-off that we're, that, we're, that, we're, that we're all feeling. Yeah. And, and precisely because of that, part uh, of finding uh, inspired you guys to look more granularly into what happened to those areas, the, the more affluent areas, workers, and then we can reach a series of more logical conclusions from, from that finding. So, which is really data-driven throughout this process. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, I, think, I think the, the whole goal too is, right, not just data for data's sake, but to really think critically around, okay, now that we're seeing these trends, what does this actually mean for policy moving forward, right? How can this research, how can this data inform the national conversation about what needs to be done to help get us out of this crisis? So maybe we can talk a little bit about policy because right now we are debating, and there are a couple economic policies being debated in Washington. One is the $1.9 trillion economic stimulus package. Uh, we're also a big debate on raising $50 minimum wage uh, there's obviously the very a lot of de debates back a few months ago about the efficacy of the paycheck protections programs or the unemployment insurance were they actually doing the, the good job uh, and then back in March it was obviously the whole debate about the CARES Act so it, it seems that most of the debate was centered on how much money should we give to American people who should we give the money to and how much should we give it to so it, what are your thoughts on answering those questions? Yeah, so you know, I'll even take a step a step back because I think right there's a lot of data and a lot of policy questions that we're all grappling with. I think there were a few questions early on that I think the data was especially helpful in kind of helping us reflect on what worked and what didn't work. 
I think one was, right, the idea of, you know, do we need to kind of shut down businesses to kind of help deal with the COVID crisis? Do we need to open up businesses to help get the economy going again? And basically something that we saw in the data by being able to look at different communities across the country was that, right, even places that had different opening policies, it didn't really seem to impact things like consumer spending or the number of businesses that were opened and closed. And I think that's consistent with the overall finding that, right, everything we're seeing is being driven by the public health crisis and by perceptions of safety, right? So something where, right, you know, states couldn't just, you know, turn on a magic switch and get the economy moving again, because, right, people are still worried about, for good reason, the actual virus. Um, so I think that was a, something early on that we saw was that, right, at its core, this is a public health crisis. And until you actually deal with, with the health issues and feelings and perceptions and like real perceptions of safety, right, we're never gonna fully be able to open up the economy. Um, I think the other thing we saw in a similar vein was with the Paycheck Protection um, Loan Program was that, right, the impact of a lot of these loans was not particularly high. And I think in the ways that we had hoped, right? Something we saw was that, you know, even between, um, you know, companies of the size that actually qualified for the loans and bigger companies, right? There wasn't much in the terms of difference in job savings, right? And again, I think part of that is, right? You know, those companies who you know, were able to move to remote work very quickly, you know, they were still able to access those dollars. Um, whereas I think, you know, those small businesses, you know, who again, rely on face-to-face -face interaction, even if they received some of that support, right? It doesn't change the overall dynamic of people not wanting to come in and patronize those businesses. So again, I think it really spoke to the importance of really getting a handle on the public health crisis before, you know, kind of thinking about, you know, spurring business and activity in these really, um, in these really impacted industries um, in, in general. I think kind of those were, I think, two of the really early funds. I think now, I think that the conversation, you know, as we're moving into hopeful recovery, you know, getting, getting vaccine distribution going, you know, now think about, you know, how do we support those workers who've been impacted most, those families who've been hit hardest by the crisis, you know, how do we really support them as we hopefully move towards a full recovery? Um, I have to say, it would have been really nice if we had known all this at the very beginning of the, the crisis, because I think uh, a, a lot of those data and, and research from uh, OI came, you know, during this, in, in the middle of the summer. Mm -hmm. And that, well, maybe it was already a little bit too late to sort of really tr try to get a control of the virus because that was already three, four months in, you know, and, and well, we can sort of go back and talk about, uh, was it because Donald Trump's failure? Was it because the federal government's failure? Is it because US as an institution would just never be able to get the people to, to comply to lockdowns? Uh, who, whose fault is it? I think that will be a sort of year long debate about this, but um, I would love to be, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on that because it seems that the data we've seen is that you have to solve the public health crisis first, but it seemed back then that it was a public health crisis that wasn't really solvable because you can never really eliminate the virus like China, Australia, or Taiwan, or many other places did. Uh, so what do you think would have been sort of the good response that you and your team put forth back uh, when, when your findings came out? Uh, mm -hmm. And did you think that the federal government in any way 
followed this advice? Hmm. No, that's that's a really good question. And I think right that was, you know, when we're looking at those paycheck protection loans, um, right, I think there's a case to be made that if they were kind of more targeted towards those companies who really needed them and who, you know, maybe it would have provided a bridge that they needed to get over a certain difficult period. But, you know, we, like a lot of money went into that program, right? And I think, you know, and we did some work with um, the software center at, at Harvard, who's looking at, you know, what, who was looking at some of the, the, the health interventions that you, you could have invested in. And I think, right, you know, kind of more comprehensive regimes around testing, right? I think, you know, you're really kind of, you know, testing, contact tracing, I think, you know, we see in other countries, I think we've seen some examples here where, you know, doing that work doesn't kind of completely solve the problem, but it can actually, you know, help us slowly open up our economy, our economies faster, right? So, you know, I'm not the public health expert, but right, I think there are a lot of evidence-based approaches where, you know, by investing in that side of it, again, through testing, through contact, tech, tra through contact tracing, I think that may have kind of kept virus levels down and potentially, you know, may have kind of helped us open up a little bit earlier. But of course, I think this is something new for everyone. And so I think, you know, we've all been struggling through it. But I think that's why, you know, even if you don't have all the answers before these things happen, right, having this real-time data source can at least help us learn as quickly as possible from previous experience to hopefully make better decisions moving forward. Um, part of the finding that you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago was that states that seem to have opened earlier did not seem to show a higher consumer spending rebound. Meaning, uh, say there's Wisconsin and, and Minnesota, one opened earlier because the state government decided to, the other did not. Um, the one that opened up early didn't actually see all the economic activities rebound. So um, does that mean there isn't really an economic trade-off when it comes to lockdowns? Because I think that's a, a huge debate that people are still ongoing. A lot of people say, Lockdowns also kill people. A lot of people say, well, we're not really seeing the evidence across countries, across states. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think oftentimes the conversation was or has been framed as, you know, either we're going to lock everything down or we're going to completely op open up. And I think, right, I think there's always a healthy middle ground to be discussed, right? I think the research, I think, did show that just opening things up without the proper protections in place, um, again, be it testing or contact tracing or some other kind of handle on the virus, right? We saw that just opening thing, thing, things up doesn't just turn the economy back on, right? Because people, even if they're allowed to go to their local bar and restaurant, people are still very much aware of the danger of the virus. And I think especially a lot of these kind of higher income families who again are able to self-isolate, right? You know, they're, they like all of us take their health to be paramount, right? So they're not going to go and spend money in these places when there's the risk of the virus still still there. Um, but does that mean you have to close everything down? No, I think again, if you invest in the right protocols, if you you know if you invest in protective equipment, I think we've seen it in certain contexts, right? Either through outdoor dining or other things, we can actually start to open up you know certain segments of our economy if we're following those proper health guidelines. So I think you know my sense is that let's actually use the data and use the evidence to figure out, right, what actually makes sense in terms of opening up, where should we still stay locked down, and what are those measures we can put in place to actually rebuild consumer confidence. And of course, now, you know, hopefully um, with the vaccine rollout, we're starting to move in that in that direction. Um, but, you know, I think we're all, we're all learning the lessons from the past year, and I think trying to apply them to the next several months until we hopefully are able to kind of stamp out the virus um, in totality. 
th this might be a little bit too too much of an economic question rather than a policy question, but do, do you think the COVID-19 shock or the reduction of consumer spending was more of a uh, supply shock or, or demand shock? So in, in the sense that is it because uh, restaurants don't want to open anymore, but there's still kind of consumer demand, but people just don't want to go? Or is it because a lack of uh, people's purchasing power, a lack of people's extra savings or their willingness to go to those restaurants that, that brought down the demand? So uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think from from the data, it really looks like a lot of it was people's willingness to actually, you know, go out and spend those dollars. Right? So people were still, you know, they're buying durable goods, but right? they're going on, on on Amazon and kind of shopping for things in that respect. Actually, we did some breakdowns of what people were spending their their money on. Right. And we saw that kind of, you know, sales of um, in-ground pools um, and of, of <laughs> luxury items were actually higher than they had been before the crisis. Right. And I think right, if it's completely consumer confidence, you probably don't see spending in the, in the, in that way. Where we saw the drop-offs, right? It was it was airline travel. It was spending at barber shops and salons, right? It was spending at bars and restaurants, right? Those places where right people don't feel comfortable. Um, and again, I think when we see these communities that did open 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 up, right? Consumer spending was still was still down, right? So I think that speaks to it's not about the fact that they were shut down. But it's that people really weren't willing to have those space-to-space -space interactions because of that public health crisis and those concerns about safety. Um, so I think it really was about um, that willingness for people to expose themselves to the virus, not because things were were shut down. Yeah, I, indeed, as you said, I think the spending on durable goods uh, went up. That's why Amazon and stuff did so well, and services went down, which is why nobody goes to restaurants anymore. So yes. Um, so what do you think of the stimulus checks then? I mean, back then and also what is happening right now, because uh, one critique against this is that the money is sort of allocated equally to all Americans in this indiscriminate manner. Everybody gets this, like Jeff Bezos would also get like a thousand dollars and sort of the marginal benefit for him is obviously not as great as, um, you know, someone who's actually struggling on the brink of bankruptcy. So uh, do, do you guys have any thoughts on back then and also today in our today's debate? Uh, about the stimulus checks. Yeah, no, so so we did, again, because of the real-time nature of the data, we were actually able to look at the impact of kind of those those most recent checks, those 600, those $600 checks um, that went out a few months ago. And basically what we saw was that kind of, you know, for folks making, you know, families making above 75,000, you know, generally they were not spending as much of that check as kind of lower income folks folks were. So I think you know the main takeaway from that is especially when you're looking at it from the stimulus perspective, right? You know, getting money back into the economy, it really seems like those checks for kind of more middle income and lower income families, those are the ones that have the bigger impact because those folks are actually spending those checks. I think it's also reflective of the need as well, right? I think you know higher income come from folks Oftentimes folks who have jobs where they're able to work remotely, right? I think that need wasn't as much, you know, they've been actually able to kind of save a lot of money through the price. And we're also probably saving some of the money they received from the initial stimulus payments. So that $600 made a few months ago versus, right? Those lower income families, right? They really needed to spend that. And we saw that originally too in the first stimulus package, right? Consumer spending really went up for lower income workers. I think it went up a bit for higher income, but definitely not as much. So it really does seem like, right? If you're thinking about, that stimulus effect, if you're thinking about targeting folks who really need these extra dollars, I think kind of focusing on those, those lower income workers and, and families is probably your best bet. I think Opportunity Insights recommended that expanding the social safety net 
and extending unemployment benefits uh, would be a better way to limit the hardship for low-income workers rather than just this all-encompassing stimulus checks because as you said maybe you get the check and you don't actually spend it you, have, you don't actually need it that much uh, compared to actually just having certain kind of benefits or social safety nets that, that can help you not lose your job or something so uh, I guess a more um, going a step beyond that in terms of policy what are some of the other policies um, you had in mind where, where you guys discussed? Because um, I don't know how hectic things must have been back then, but I imagine you must have been communicating with many different nonprofits or, or data partners or um, local and state governments and briefing a lot of people. What was the sentiment like? What were some of the ideas being floated around? Yeah, no, that's a great, a great question. That's kind of the, the fun part of my job, right, is to talk to people, you know, locally to better understand what, what their challenges are. And I think you're right, right? I think the overall message and the findings from the research is not to be kind of stingy with support, right? I think targeting doesn't mean necessarily less, but I think it's right, these dollars are, are real. And this crisis, you know, has dragged on for a long time. And it's, you know, it's, it's going to take a while until we really get the virus under control. So when we are thinking about these very large sums of money, let's make sure that we're spending it where we're gonna have the most impact. And I think especially in the data, you know, being able to really target those families who've been hit hardest, right? Those people who've actually lost their jobs who are in these particular industries, right? And they're not working. And, and, and we will see if those jobs come back in the same way they were before the crisis. But I think you know, if we can target you know, folks who are feeling the brunt of this most, I think that's where we're gonna get the biggest bang for our buck. And I think part of it is like the need is so great, right? So you have, you know, you know, of course, extending unemployment insurance, but I think we mentioned too, the impact on families and children, right? So, you know, you have all these kids oftentimes, right, who might not have access to, to broadband, they might not have Wi-Fi, they're really struggling, um, you know, to stay engaged with their, with their, with their class, classrooms. You have parents who might have to be home and kind of supporting their kids or pay for, pay for childcare. I think the need is so great, really thinking through who are the most vulnerable, who are being impacted is super important. And, I, and especially I think on the childhood front, thinking about tutoring, like, you know, how do we help kids get back on track after what might be you know, almost a year of learning loss? Because I think those are things that the research shows are gonna have significant impact you know, well beyond the kind, of, the kind of temporal limits of this, of this crisis. So I think, I think it's just about how do we target those folks Right, who are struggling the most, who are being impacted the most by this crisis, to really make sure that kind of they have, you know, some kind of opportunity moving moving forward after we are able to get a handle on the health crisis. Uh, David, I guess one of my questions would be, as you made policy recommendations to people, as you interacted with people uh, outside of Opportunity Insights. How much pushback did you face, uh, both in terms of challenging your research results and also uh, your policy recommendations? How, how open-minded did you think people were? Um, how incentivized do you think they were to, to solve this, this problem? Yeah, no, that's a really good question too. And I think, I think in a certain sense, we usually don't face too much pushback because I think the idea is, right, it's not that you know, we have a monopoly on all the data and information. I think we have some unique data sources that can inform the conversation in interesting ways. But a lot of what we do is to kind of use the data, share the data, and actually have conversations to figure out, you know, what people think they can use the data for, right? What they're seeing on the ground, what solutions might look like in their local context. So I think oftentimes what we do is try and co-create with communities to figure out, okay, here's what the data says, 
here's what we think might be going on. Here are some, some, some of our ideas about what might solutions look like, but we wanna hear from you, right? We wanna know about your local circumstances, how you might be able to use this data to really inform your local policy and decision-making in general. So I think, you know, it's not about a top-down approach in general, but really kind of co-creating with policymakers, understanding their needs and kind of working together to leverage our data to help them make better informed de decisions. Did you run into other researchers who just really disagreed with uh, what you found because they did their own study with other data sets? Because uh, I think in the middle of the COVID pandemic, there's just a stream of working papers, uh, all kinds of studies on, you know, some say taxation did this, some say this benefited that. So, uh, and I think even on public health issues such as um, should we have closed down the restaurants, outdoor dining versus indoor dining? Uh, how much sort of how easily is is it actually transmissible this this virus? Um, is it worth it to close down certain businesses? So, I think both in terms of public health, which which is honestly a hard science. Um, if hard sciences people can't even settle on a on one fact per se, then as as a field like economics, which is a social science, uh, it, it seems there's a, it's very hard to to come to an absolute agreement, right? Yeah, yeah no, and, and honestly, I think right, even though our data is very precise, it doesn't necessarily give you the exact answer, right? So even if we're seeing that right, PPP loans may not have been the most effective kind of use of a certain type of dollars, right? There is still some good that came from that program. I'm sure there are lots of companies who benefited in a very real real way, but it's all about trade-offs. So I think, you know, our goal is we put the information out there. I think you know, we put some guidance around what we might think that means in terms of policy making. But I think we understand that, you know, we're not the be all and end all. And there are lots of things that policymakers have to take into account when they're trying to make these choices. I think even with the current conversation with the um, stimulus bill, right? I think, you know, there are debates around, you know, kind of what are the political ramifications of targeting these, these different bills, um, right? You know, I think people can um, look at the data in some different ways, but I think, you know, our goal is to put out data that is, you know, as reliable as possible that can inform the conversation, even if it doesn't give you the exact precise policy takeaway. Um, and so that's kind of what's fun about my job is, you know, you get to be part of the conversation, you see where the debate goes and you try and inform the debate in healthy. And I think, you know, also in, in bipartisan ways too, that's not based in just your ideology of what you think you should do, but hey, this is what it looks like the actual impact of these choices is really having on the economy and our communities. And hopefully now people are kind of better informed to make their own decisions moving, moving forward. Uh, going forward, how do you foresee this, I mean, by this, I mean literally everything you can unfold uh, from from your perspective. Meaning, economic policy at at a federal government level, at a local level, whether it's in uh, Massachusetts, where Harvard is related, uh, located at, or uh, relating states and, and other parts. So, um, what are your some of your predictions or recommendations in terms of policy? So, I think so. I'd say there's kind of two themes that I, that I would hit on. I think one is. When you have tools like the economic tracker, right, I think they're hopefully not just useful in times of crisis, but could just help us think more critically around policymaking moving, moving forward as well. Where I think kind of when we're able to see differences between and, and across communities and kind of think about how we can actually kind of build more inclusive, equitable economies for everyone during normal, normal times as well. 
Um, I and I think the other thing that a lot of the data in the tracker points to are a lot of the inequities that we saw in our previous research, right? So when we see this crisis hitting low wage workers the hardest, when, when, when we see that it's kind of low income communities where we see those highest drop offs in school and get engagement, I think these are kind of continuations of, but also kind of exacerbating trends that I think we had already been seeing in a lot of our other research about social mobility, economic opportunity, and social inequality. So I think you know, hopefully, you know, this crisis can serve as almost a, a gut check and help us double down on, I think, a lot of the important work that I think many folks in these spaces of equity, you know, have been, have been thinking about for a very long, long time. But I think also this crisis shows that it'll take real resources, right? Because I think we were definitely caught off guard by this. And I think the crisis, I think, really kind of shone a light on a lot of the fissures that already existed in our communities. Are you guys still working on COVID-related uh, topics, new papers, new data, or is this kind of it and you guys are going back to a lot of the other research you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, COVID isn't, like, isn't, isn't over yet, so I think there will, there will still be uh, things to analyze. So I think, you know, we'll be continuing um, to follow the economic tracker, um, kind of continuing to try and make it a, a better and more useful tool for policymakers, but I think you know, it's something that it was definitely a all hands on deck project early on in the crisis. I think now we're going to be able to kind of, you know, both continue to kind of follow that progress along with kind of diving back into kind of our more traditional research pathways that look at economic opportunity, be it in the neighborhood context, the college and university. So I think we'll hopefully be able to kind of like bring those pieces together um, to kind of, you know, have that real time data set that really complements um, the more longitudinal research that we do on opportunity. It's perhaps this is a good time to pivot to some of the other long-term projects that OI is, is engaged in. I think one of the most uh, more famous one is uh, CMTO, uh, Creating Moves to Opportunity, which is an experiment with the Seattle Housing Authority. So what the initiative did was to try to um, reduce challenges for families when um, federal rental assistance, uh, which basically trying to help them find housing by reducing certain uh, barriers during the housing search process, help with landlords, security deposits, so on. So uh, um, I, I forgot that the exact year you joined OI and whether you were involved with that process or sort of communicating with local, local governments, but I, I think it would be a fascinating perspective to, to hear from you, uh, both on the, on the research, what it actually is, what the project is, and also the kind of policy work you engaged in to, to communicate with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the origins of CMTO, Creating Most Opportunity, began before I started at Opportunity Insights. But, you know, largely it's based on our research in the Opportunity Atlas, right? So it's this tool that's available at opportunityatlas.org. Basically using data from 20 million kids across the country, we're able to look at, in a certain sense, the roots of opportunity and inequality. And we can look at the outcomes for kids who grew up in every neighborhood across the country. And because we can do that, we can also, in a certain sense, pinpoint some of those neighborhoods within communities where kids, especially kids growing up in low-income families, have really good outcomes, right? Where on average, they have a fair likelihood of attending college, they have a, you know, or, they're, or they're earning more as adults. And so, you know, part of what we saw in the data was that, you know, we can kind of see these different places, but oftentimes low-income families, especially families who are using things like housing choice vouchers or affordable housing more generally, Right, they're often not ending up in these neighborhoods that really benefit these kids when they grow up there. Um, so, and this is a kind of part of, you know, how our model developed, you know, that research paper came out about the general impact of neighborhoods. 
And I think we heard feedback specifically from housing authorities saying, hey, like this really resonates with us. You know, we've been thinking around, you know, how do we actually increase access to these type of neighborhoods for our, our, our families? And I think that conversation, a lot of iteration and collaboration led to CMTO as a project where it was, hey, we know some of these neighborhoods have high rates of upward mobility. We know that families using housing choice vouchers oftentimes can't access these neighborhoods. What might a program or policy be that can help increase access to these places? And so we actually kind of tested it out through randomized evaluation. And the idea was we basically provided families with housing counselors so they'd help walk them through the rental search process. We engage with landlords to help cut down on some of the red tape and to kind of break down some of the stereotypes or misgivings around working with housing authorities as organizations, but also with these families using vouchers and also provided some flexible financial assistance to help with things like moving costs, um, you know, de deposits and other things associated with making these, these moves. And something we saw was that for the families that received this additional support, they were almost four times more likely to move to these higher opportunity places. And these are places that, you know, in the long run, if these kids grow up there, you know, they will, you know, on, on, on average earn, you know, hundreds of thousands of more dollars over their lifetimes in part due to living in these places. So it's a project that, you know, we were excited to see these impacts of the evaluation, but this is something that can actually kind of like help move kids out of poverty and really increase rates of upward mo mobility. I was listening to this presentation by Professor Chetty, and I think he was saying that the United States is already spending like $45 billion or something on 2.2 million families to help them find housings or housing vouchers. Uh, since we're already spending money doing that, maybe we can significantly improve the efficacy of that uh, by simply removing certain barriers. And that is one of the misconceptions that you guys helped overturn, which is that families live in low opportunity, low mobility areas, not because of rent prices per se. It's also because uh, maybe they submitted too many applications and they got rejected by too many places. They got tired, so they don't want to apply anymore. Uh, maybe there's something else going on with security deposits. So if you can remove those barriers, you can dramatically improve the social outcomes yeah. uh, in, the, in the treatment group, the, those who, who were assisted. So um, did, did, what was the sort of the, follow on policy effects from, from that research? I mean, uh, was it somewhat limited to Seattle? Did other cities start to reach out and adopt this policy? Uh, what are some of the greater ripple effects that we're seeing? Yeah, no, so that's been a really exciting part of the project is that one, we were of course happy to see that the pilot project worked, right? To see those higher rates of families moving to some of these higher opportunity places. And we definitely did hear from a lot of housing authorities, a lot of communities, who are interested in exploring how they could develop this model in their own community. But I think what's most exciting is that, it, that this has really helped shape some of the conversations at our federal level as well. So the Department of Housing and Urban Development, basically the nation's kind of housing entity, um, they have invested $50 million in a new pilot demonstration program, which would basically kind of take a lot of the lessons learned from CMTO in Seattle and King County and support several other housing authorities across the country to implement similar programs 
um, you know, specified and kind of tailored to their local circumstance. So I think the idea would be, you know, we had, you know, one successful pilot program that's kind of based on, you know, a, a, a larger body of work and experience from other com 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 communities. But I think having, you know, that pilot program work in a very rigorous research oriented way and now kind of expanding that to several other pilots, which could hopefully lead towards even larger scaling um, to hopefully make this just kind of like how HUD the housing urban development department does business in general right because again as you mentioned as raj mentioned right we're already spending billions every year on really important affordable housing programs that you know kind of are lifelines for millions of families and kind of making more housing stability but if we can also leverage these resources to, to deconcentrate poverty decrease segregation kind of provide greater access for families you know i think it can even be exponential in the impact that it's already having um, so, so I think th those were the um, Section 8 vouchers or something, the housing vouchers we were just talking about. And uh, Professor Shetty was also mentioning how uh, there's another very famous Harvard economist, Larry Katz, who was sort of the, a pioneer back in the 90s with this project called Moving to Opportunity, mm -hmm. also doing a lot of the randomized control trials. And found that if you moved earlier in your age, like you know, under 13 or something, uh, you would have much better outcomes compared to those who moved later. So th this, maybe we can take a step back and talk about the growing literature on social mobility and, and what this means for, for America, because uh, previously on the show, also as part of our COVID-19 coverage, I interviewed uh, uh, Professor Elora de Ranancourt, who mm -hmm. is right now, uh, she graduated from Harvard as a PhD student. I don't know if she interacted with Opportunity Insights or uh, Professor Chetty, but uh, she's now an assistant professor at Berkeley. And she wrote this very interesting paper called Can You Move to Opportunity Evidence from the Great Migration? And, and what she found from economic history was that if you uh, were, were from the South and you were a family who wanted better outcomes for your family, for your children, and you simply moved to a Northern city that is considered uh, a better city, a richer city, uh, it actually didn't just, it actually didn't really do anything, do much for you because what happened was when black people moved from South to North, we, it caused white flight. Um, you know, a lot of the white people simply left those neighborhoods that black people were moving to. And we saw greater levels of segregation, greater levels of uh, police brutality, inequality, um, lower sort of public uh, education spending and such and so on, all kinds of effects. So it seems that this idea of moving to opportunity. So I, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that because we, we keep hearing this idea that you wanna be in a high opportunity zone uh, the, the, that will give you some kind of social mobility. And I think that's a lot of the, the, in the metrics and, and research that uh, Opportunity Insights is doing. But um, do you think that, that based on what we've seen so far, you, you can actually move to opportunity or, or live in an area and that would significantly improve your chances of uh, advancing on the social ladder? Yeah, no, and Alora's research um, is 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 fan is fantastic. And she actually worked very closely with Nathan Hendren um, from Opportunity Insight, which yeah. is at at Harvard, I believe. Um, and so, no, it, it's a really good question. Um, I think kind of you know one thing is that when you're talking about Section Eight vouchers, housing vouchers, right? I think it it's at the scale where you're not going to see kind of that neighborhood change and backlash that I think kind of characterize some of those great mi migration moves. And I think, you know, I can't speak, you know, as well to her research, but I think part of the finding was, is that, right, those folks who made those initial moves, they did benefit from increased opportunity in places like Detroit and Chicago. But because of that backlash you mentioned, you know, white flight and what comes along with it, 
that next gen generation didn't get to benefit from that same opportunity. So it's this really kind of like interesting push and pull dynamic you have here. And I think kind of like at, at its core, right? I think, you know, we're not gonna solve all of our issues by moving, pe pe by moving people around, right? But right, I think if we continue to have, you know, deep pockets of concentrated poverty, right? Communities that are super segregated, having rich and poor places, it's gonna be really hard, I think, to increase opportunity. Um, and so I think kind of part of moving is actually kind of mixing people, creating mixed income communities. And I think right in the short term, I think the evidence is pretty strong that these moves really do benefit these individual families and children. But I think in the long run, I think moving to opportunity, creating moves to opportunity can be kind of like one tool that we, that we have to actually create integrated communities more broadly, right? So that it's not about, you know, saving this disinvested place, but actually we have like places where rich and poor and middle class all live together. And then we're actually able to kind of support those who are most vulnerable, you know, on an individual basis where we're not having to kind of uplift an entire community that's been disinvested for the past 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. So I suppose the takeaway I, I just got from what you were saying is you, you kind of have to separate between the aggregate level policy versus individual level policy, because you could say for, for an individual, you would be personally incentivized to move to this area. But, but obviously at a national level, that cannot just be the one national policy, which is that let's just move everybody because then that doesn't really solve inequality per se. So at the national level, uh, you would need both this kind of moving policy, but also actually investing in those communities and making those communities better. So it's, it seems that we're, we, we need to separate the different levels of conversation yeah. Uh, yeah. On, on that front. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I think one, uh, another project that came out of that is the Charlotte Opportunity Initiative, mm. uh, where, where I, I guess that was this kind of um, the, the work that uh, Opportunity Insights is doing with the city of Charlotte is kind of uh, related to this because uh, Charlotte is, I think, one of the uh, lowest mobility cities in, in America or something. And, and at least based on the data in 2014 or something. Mm -hmm. And the current project, is trying to understand how big data can be used to identify those policy solutions that reverse some of those trends in Charlotte. So maybe we can go there. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about that project? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, that started in part because from some of our research from 2014, it showed that of the 50 biggest metro areas across the country, Charlotte had the lowest economic mobility rates compared to all of them. Um, and in some sense, right, this was I think a wake up call for Charlotte was also pretty surprising for our team as well. Because if you think of right places like Charlotte, places like Atlanta, right, they've been growing tremendously over the past 20 years, right? Lots of job growth, you know, people moving to these communities. But despite kind of this outward perception of prosperity, right, we were seeing that, right, those kids who grow up in Charlotte, especially in middle and low income communities, right, they weren't able to tap into that prosperity that was seemingly just down the road. Um, so I think for Charlotte, again, it was a wake up call. Um, they could have been very defensive and said, hey, we don't really buy this research. Like things look good here. We're not gonna worry about it. They said, hey, like lots of good things are happening here in Charlotte, but like, let's really take this seriously, right? How do we not just become a high growth city, but how do we really become a place that can be opportunity rich for all? And so something they did in part led by the Foundation for the Carolinas, um, they created what they call the Legal Opportunity Task Force to kind of take that high level research and then dig down and see, right, what are the actual barriers 
that our families here locally in Charlotte are facing and how can we overcome them. And then um, when I came on board to Opportunity Insights um, a couple of years ago, I said, that, hey, Charlotte's already doing this great work. We now have a tool like the Opportunity Atlas. You know, how can we work together with a really motivated community to figure out how to better leverage our research to actually impact their policy conversations and push for change? So I think the, the basic idea was, you know, they were doing their on the ground work. We wanted to bring our research to the table and basically collaborate to figure out okay, how do we then really, you know, point to those areas of policy where we could really be impactful in moving the needle on rates and economic mobility. And we came out with a, re a re report about six months ago. And so we're kind of starting to identify now how we can take some kind of next steps um, to really move the needle on opportunity in Charlotte. Uh, when you interact with policymakers or politicians at a local level or present research, do you feel a sense that uh, there's a divide between uh, Democratic and Republican uh, politicians or policymakers, uh, sort of open-mindedness or mm. um, for, for, the, for the research? Or in other words, I, I guess the question is somewhat later. One is, have you observed that cities that are run by you know democratic or republican reg uh, regimes are um better at handling some of those issues of inequality or social mobility and when you critique them when you present research like you are for charlotte um does one party seem to be a little bit more open to the idea than than the other hmm. no that's a really good question and so right i think you know for for real reasons, right? We are a nonpartisan group, um, but I think you know, it goes just beyond saying that in name to the fact that, right? Like we want to bring objective data to the table, and I think it's been heartening for me that that usually I think people actually like data. I think they like to have facts behind what they're doing. And I think that crosses across um, party party lines. Now, I think a lot of times our research points to the need to make like pretty significant investments in certain kinds of programs and policies. And I think, you know, sometimes there are, you know, certain 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 parties that, you know, kind of are more amenable to kind of spending big when it comes to, to human capital. But I think in a place like, like Charlotte in the South, I think we see people who, right, they want to have a positive impact. And I think they're excited when, you know, there is data being provided and not just what they perceive as someone's ideology. Um, so, right, there's always differences across party lines, but I think, you know, because our goal is not to just bring a perspective, but bring evidence to the table. I think that can kind of sometimes help cut across party lines. Um, but, you know, it's always interesting, you know, negotiating those little differences too. <laughs> uh, but I suppose you guys don't, or I guess in other words, have you observed that somewhat leftist versus somewhat conservative policies would be more effective in addressing those issues? So for example, uh, if we talk to someone like Thomas Piketty mm -hmm. or even other American scholars like um, Emmanuel Sayas or Gabriel Zuckman who wrote about taxation, uh, it seems that they would take a much more, one could say leftist or, or mm -hmm. one could also say evidence-based mm -hmm. way of saying higher taxation for the rich. There's some kind of normative element, ideological argument to, to their research uh, whereas obviously some, something like the Cato Institute, like conservative think tanks would say, listen, you got a tax credit, you know, uh, uh, such and so on, deregulation. Um, what are some of your thoughts on this? I know you guys don't really do the ideology, ideology per se, so. Yeah, no, right. like, 
I think a lot of what we focused on, because it really seems to have the biggest ROI, is investing in human capital, especially in in kids, right? And so I think, you know, not that tax, I mean, tax policy is obviously very, very important, but I think for us, again, not just because like our research happens to point that direction, but it really looks like drivers of economic mobility really are focused on, on youth. Now, like when you think about how you're going to pay for that kind of programming, that probably would involve some kind of taxation, right? Um, so I think it's kind of this interesting balance where I think a lot of our research does focus on, you know, certain kind of investments that, you know, usually can get a lot of buy-in across party, party lines. And I think, you know, we oftentimes find ourselves, you know, conservatives and liberals are kind of like upset about what we're saying in terms of our research, right? I think something, <laughs> something that's interesting, right, is that when, yeah. look, right, when, when we look at those, those factors that are most highly associated with upper mobility in neighborhoods, right, one of them, actually the most correlated factor is two-parent household share, right? And so I think a lot of times that you hear from conservatives, oh, that's all about the importance of family and family stability, and we should be encouraging marriage, right? On the other side is actually, that's probably more about, especially for, for, for the lack of black men in communities, that's about the criminal justice system, right? Um, so I think, you know, you know, you know, where do you fall on that spectrum? Probably depends on your, your, your ideology and saying, hey, the data tells us this, it doesn't give us like the exact reason for why that's 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 happening, but there's probably something you could pull from all sides of the political spectrum that might be relevant relevant there. You found the sweet spot for, for economic policy that does not involve too much uh, ideological warfare. So uh, that's great. Uh, maybe we can take another step back and look at this idea of big data in economic policy research because I kind of alluded at the beginning of the interview that Raj Chetty is regarded by many as the best applied microeconomist uh, in our world today. And, and the reason why people say that is his unique ability to um, use those extremely huge data sets uh, and granular data sets and then distill some wonderful insights and also uh, simple policy takeaways uh, from a lot of those data. So uh, on the other hand, people would say, uh, does that mean if you have more data, you can do better economic policy research. And, and I, I, I've heard interviews by Professor Chetty and others said before that, no, no, we have our edge. <laughs> and so I would love to hear your thoughts on this, meaning if, if I am someone, a college kid or a PhD student or some other average professor, and I just have more data than, than Raj Chetty, uh, can I outdo you guys? If I have better data and more data. <laughs> That is a very good question. You know, I, I, I probably don't have like the, the kind of succinct answer to that. Um, right, but and I think my sense, and you know, I'm not an economist by training, but of course the data is very important to all these questions, right? You know, because you, you, you can't just, just make up the analysis without having really good underlying data behind it. Um, you know, my sense is that kind of Raj throughout his career, I think has shown the creativity kind of had the vision to say, wow, like we could really get at some of these interesting questions if we had this type of data. And I think you also don't get access unless you have a track record of being able to use it effectively and carefully. And I think kind of from all the work that I've seen, I think it's, it's that combination that I think has really led to kind of his success, the success of Nathan and John Friedman, 
and of the organization generally is both kind of having the vision to ask those big questions and the wherewithal and determination to actually then go after those data sets that can that can help you answer those questions and kind of then building on success. So I think, right, like if we hadn't created the Opportunity Atlas using the IRS and Census Bureau data, right, we probably wouldn't have been able to convince private companies to share their data for the economic tracking, right? So I think it's kind of built, it's, you know, of course, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's being opportunistic when the, when the opportunities present themselves in general, but then really doing the most you can with those resources, building that reputation, and then kind of doing further projects on top of it. Um, but I also think another piece that you hinted at too is that, right, this data is complicated. Um, these economics research papers are very complicated. And I think research papers, you know, alone are not going to impact policy. And I think Raj and team have become very effective in distilling these very complicated findings into things that policymakers and just general people can understand, but I think more importantly can actually use. And I think being able to kind of both, again, take 20 million data points, get access to the data, clean the data, create an online tool, write a paper, and then actually distill it in a way that can influence policy and lead towards randomized evaluations in Seattle and shifting HUD policy in Washington, DC. I'm sure, Tiger, if you had all that data, you know, maybe you can do all those same things, <laughs> but that's a lot of work, man. <laughs> No, I, t I totally see what you're saying, because I, th I think in the field of economics, uh, a lot of people would uh, cynically say he's just successful or she's just a great professor because they had some unique access to this database that the rest of us don't really have. And well, of course, then you would you would have to look at their econometrics, their creativity, their statistical methods, and you realize uh, there is some um, brilliance behind the work. Uh, are we seeing this rising trend of big data? Because my question would be, okay, uh, Opportunity Insights have, have proven that if you can work with IRS uh, mm -hmm. and, and if you can work with HUD and the city of Charlotte and uh, the, the city of Seattle, you can make positive changes to the society. So what is preventing every single state and local government to provide more data to more researchers and everybody just doing this. I mean, I mean why, why aren't we seeing that? And, and if there are 10 private part, uh, data partners who are willing to work with Opportunity Insights, how about the many hundreds out there? Um, so, so I'm just really curious, are we seeing a rising trend in this? Um, hmm. No, that's a really good question. And I think something that we, part of the mission is to make as much of this as publicly accessible as possible, both so that it's useful, but I think too, to show it as an e example that this kind of work can have impact and we should be looking for other opportunities to, to do it. But I think there's a lot of interesting work happening at the, at the state level, right? So there have been kind of the different state policy labs who are using state administrative data to kind of you know, do similar types of policy work at the more local local level, um, right? So I think this is a trend. I think, right, it's been happening in the private sector for a very long time, right? Amazon, Google, right? They're monetizing big data in very effective ways. And I think we're starting to see how Anyway, if, if we do it, if we can do it to make to make money, we can also do it to have this kind of social impact as well. Um, and actually something that I, I really appreciate is, um, you know, Raj has a course at Harvard that's kind of geared towards introducing people to economics and big data through these questions of social impact, right? So kind of trying to attract, you know, folks who might not have that interest, the traditional interest in kind of finance or, or business, but when they see that you can actually apply economics to social issues, they get much more interested, 
right? So I think, you know, part of this is about the research right now, but also broadening the field and getting more people involved in economics who actually want to want to explore these interesting questions of social impact as well. And I think hopefully that helps broaden the field, kind of kind of create that cascading effect of getting more people involved, leveraging big data in more and, and more ways to help answer a lot of these tricky questions. Uh, I, I'm about to ask something maybe slightly controversial, or but that was out. Okay, that, uh, so David, uh, feel free to, to decline to answer, but since you, you brought up that I'm a comedian at the beginning, so I'll, I'll have to ask. The, uh, I was talking to some uh, Wall Street chief economists and, and they were joking how, uh, they were obviously very amazed by uh, all the data released by Opportunity Insights, but they, they were saying, I kind of saw this uh, from some hedge funds, this kind of data like two months ago. And the, the hedge funds already made the trades, they already made all the money, they just didn't release it to the public. Obviously the academia and, and opportunity insights did the public a great service by really organizing them and making them presentable and, and showing to the public but in some way the data have been there and people could have really done it and monetized it in very effective ways so as you were saying amazon and google so i will uh, i just want to ask what is preventing opportunity insights from monetizing on on these data in some way per se right or or, or um not just like saying at the beginning of the COVID crisis, Rush Chetty knew that the economic impact and then he made some trades on the stock market, but, but what is preventing a new model of economic research that is saying, we just have all those data from financial markets or consumer spending, whatever, and uh, we can make money and we can hire, use that money to hire more economists to, to do big data. So, so instead of having kids to go to Wall Street, they can uh, work for similar type of econ research firms or, or, or working with econ problems, uh, but making money on the side. Yeah, interesting. Well, I think, I think for us specifically, right, I think, right, we're a mission-driven organ organization. I think also importantly too, like, I mean, we're based in the academic world, right? So Raj and Nathan are professors at Harvard, John yeah. Brown, right? So, you know, you know, they have a day job, right? Like their core goal, their core mission is to teach students and kind of add to the literature, right? So, you know, they started an organization in in that image. Like, I'm sure, like, they could have started their own consulting firms, but that's just- I'm not trying to get them to join a hedge fund, but- <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people who would hire any of them to join their hedge fund, but, you know, they, they've dedicated their lives to the academic pursuit and to really helping answer these questions from a social pers perspective. And like I mentioned, like, Again, like this data that these, these companies have, have provided, I mean, they also, I mean, you know, they don't collect this, they didn't collect this to answer questions about COVID, right? Like this right. is part of their processes, right? Yeah. They're using their, their data for their bottom line as well, and they're entitled to do so. But I think they also saw that there was a social good that could come of, their, of them sharing some of their data as well. And I think that's actually a pretty healthy balance, right? I think you know, it takes a lot of time and money to be able to collect it, to do all the work that these company, companies do. And so they should, and I'm sure they are monetizing it in ways that, that are very effective, but I think they also saw the bigger social value that given how big the crisis was, um, that, you know, they could contribute to helping. And I think again, something where like no one's benefiting except for Zoom maybe from this crisis, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? So I, think, so I think the more that we can marshal our collective resources, to get through this, the better it is for everyone. I and mean, I think, you know, hopefully this is also a model that 
the government can adapt as well, right? Kind of using additional data data sources to be able to track our overall economy. So, right, I think it's that, you know, we don't make money off this because our mission is not to make money off this, right? We're an academic group who wants to have impact in a, in a socially responsible way. And so that's what we're focused on, but we're also happy to partner with the private sector who, you know, they're using their data both for good and for their bottom line. Well, I guess that was uh, at the point I was trying to get at, and you you put it perfectly, which is that uh, this is a new way of doing economic research, and 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 one would say a private academic partnership in in the sense that if Amazon and Google are more willing to share more of their data, it would do the society a tremendous amount of good, and, and it doesn't really prevent them from monetizing their data either. So uh, I, I think Opportunity Insights uh, as a lab really provided that new way of thinking. So um, I guess you, you hinted at the federal government. And I think the federal government perhaps was uniquely bad at collecting some of the data at the beginning of the crisis because we, we interviewed uh, Robinson Meyer, who uh, is a journalist at The Atlantic. And he founded the COVID tracking project, which mm -hmm. is the, the primary source of information along with Johns Hopkins and so on. Uh, to release uh, case uh, infection data on the public health side. So uh, not entirely the same as what um, Opportunity Insights are doing. And th these people didn't have any, they were journalists and not data scientists. But he was telling me the story during our interview that uh, it's literally just a couple of journalists. They started emailing local officials, what were your case counts every day? And they would scrape those data from their websites and and. Uh, I think the, the Hawaii's uh, case count data was actually every day released first on the Hawa Hawaiian Lieutenant government's Instagram story. So that, that is where uh, all of the data were coming from. And, and for me, that was quite shocking because like the CDC and the White House didn't have any data. It seems that they didn't have anything clue about what's going on with consumer spending. And it relied on uh, professors like, uh, you know, at Opportunity Insights to, to do this work. So I'm, I'm seeing two conflicting pictures here, which is on one hand, people say the government is everywhere. They're collecting all your data. Uh, and I say has all the surveillance they need from you. And on the other hand, they don't even have the most basic data to, to even get a handle of what this crisis is doing. So I don't know, as you deal with policy and data and economic research and kind of at the intersection of everything, how do you see the government being able to to improve on, on, on understanding their policy and using data to drive their policy. Yeah, no, right. I think, right, this is, of course, an unprecedented crisis, right? Nobody was ready for it. Um, and we were fortunately, you know, nimble and positioned well to provide what we think is a useful public good. Um, but I think, right, this is something that, you know, we're you know, hoping to have conversations to see how we could incorporate something like the tractor, the kind of data analysis we're doing into something that potentially, you know, sits more formally with government as well, um, right? Because I think, you know, we had that nimbleness early on, but again, we see it as a, a public good, right? We're not trying to monetize it. So if this can serve as kind of officially something more public, I think that's a win for everyone. And I think, right, I think it's always, I think it's a give and take, right? I think the academic side is sometimes well positioned to innovate in certain ways, like government is super important for, for scaling and institutional knowledge. So I think kind of work, you know, we try and fit in wherever we think we can add, add value and then hopefully create public goods that 
whether or not we own it or someone else owns it, as long as it's doing the intended function, we think that's kind of a win for everybody. So, you know, hopefully the, the, the tracker can really serve as something that can kind of serve beyond the confines of opportunity and insights. Uh, David, I know we are kind of near the end of our interview. So uh, I, one question I would ask you is what other projects are you guys engaged in right now? I know you guys are constantly, must be constantly thinking about new ideas, new papers and, and new, new data partners. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So again, I think, you know, now that we're able to not spend all of our time on COVID, we can kind of, you know, bring, bring our head back up and figure out what else, what else is out there. But I think we, we are definitely very excited about this demonstration program with HUD, basically the program that is taking a lot of lessons from credit move to opportunity and other housing mobility models and kind of applying them and providing support for multiple communities across the country to help expand access for families using Section 8 vouchers also known as, as housing choice. So we're kind of excited to kind of support those efforts um, moving, moving, moving forward. But I think we have a lot of research that it might take a while still for it to become public, but kind of looking at the impact of place-based policies to kind of complement again, because you're not going to solve everything by moving folks around, right? How do you invest um, efficiently and effectively in neighborhoods to create, to create opportunity for the people who live there? So I think ongoing research is happening on that front and also ongoing research on the impact of higher ed. So just like we can look at the impacts of neighborhoods on long-term outcomes, we can also look at the impact of colleges and universities across the country as well. So, you know, I think kind of hopefully bringing all those different pieces together in ways that can kind of really help shape the conversation, but also kind of help people think across these different silos, right? So it's not just housing mobility, it's not just place-based investment, it's not just higher ed, right? how do all those things interact um, in the kind of broader ecosystem um, that we have in our country. And I think another thing that I've been working on as well is with my colleague, Nathan, Nathan Hendren, he's done some research on a methodology called the marginal value of public funds, which is basically a way to kind of standardize evaluation across multiple policy areas, which I think should hopefully be interesting for conversations around federal government spending to say, hey, what are the policies, be they certain tax policies, early education interventions, college access programs, housing policies, right? What are the policies that really have the highest return on investment? And once we can actually evaluate across different policy types, that might help us make more effective investments on overall. That sounds fascinating. And when that research comes out, I would love to have you or, or Professor Hendren back on, you know, on, on the show to talk about this. That, that, that would be great. But I think personally, I'm very curious about the, uh, I, I think it's titled College Land or something, which is the, the you, you mentioned, do colleges actually matter? How education actually matter for social mobility? I, I would love uh, if you guys have some provocative statements coming out, like Princeton doesn't actually make one smarter or more successful or something. So <laughs> uh, that would be fun. <laughs> Finding, you'll be the first to know. Believe exactly. <laughs> so, so David, uh, um, it's a long-standing tradition of our show to ask at the end, uh, what is your policy punchline? Because that's the name of our show. Uh, you, you, it could be a punchline about anything, about uh, CMTO, about COVID tracking project, about uh, anything we've discussed today about big data. So oh, it does not have to be funny or, or punchy at all. Man, you're really putting me on the spot here. <laughs> um, imagine it has to involve the word opportunity or it just wouldn't be, uh, be right. Well, basically what I'm gonna say is actually, this might seem out of left field. So I'm from Michigan. I worked the mayor's office in Detroit um, before starting Opportunity Insights. 
my punchline is that all roads lead to Detroit. <laughs> I think you worked at the, uh, in Detroit, or, or, or yeah. right? Yeah, so you know, I served in. I, I grew up um, in that area. I served in the in the in the mayor's office. And it's funny. I feel like all the policy conversations um, I've had. There are so many people who either worked in Detroit or from Detroit who were influencing policy across the country. And I think a lot of the stuff that we worked on when I was working in Detroit, um, I think has really kind of shaped how I think about policy more, more, more broadly. I think there's a lot that we can learn from things happening in the city now. Wow. Wow. Maybe there could be a new paper like Detroit, the new, the new deep state or something, the new deep state of the, the American policy making. <laughs> I'll try and pitch that to Raj. Exactly. That would, that would be great to, to see how uh, different areas of backgrounds influence the social mobility and policy making or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, David, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you. It was a wonderful overview. Uh, how, how can people learn more about your work, about Opportunity Insights work, anything uh, you would like to uh, suggest to our follow um, listeners uh, in terms of following your work and learning more about social mobility. Yeah, so I'll say three things. Um, one, our main website, opportunityinsights.org. We have lots of research papers. Um, our report on economic mobility in Charlotte is all available there. For the folks who are kind of more, more, more nerdy, they should try and check all that stuff, stuff out. Um, also, the Opportunity Atlas, opportunityatlas.org. You can look at every neighborhood in the country and get a better sense for what the outcomes are for the kids who grow up there. And then economic tracker, tracktherecovery.org. You can look at trends in your state, in your county, sometimes even um, in, in your zip code of how COVID is impacting um, the economy and how the economy is impacting our communities. So I'd say be part of the, conver the conversation, learn what's happening in the data and feel free to reach out. Thanks so much for joining me again today, David. Tiger, thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. That was with David Williams, who is the Policy Outreach Director for Opportunity Insights. We encourage you to learn more about those topics and follow all the fascinating work done by uh, Opportunity Insights, both on the COVID-19 front and also uh, across issues on social mobility and inequality. Uh, this concludes this episode. Please follow us on policypunchline.com, iTunes, Spotify. You can watch this video on YouTube. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.